be reading from today out of James is, is found on page 1013 in your pew Bibles, so you can turn there. Uh, as we think about what we're going to read, you know, we know that all the Bible is relevant to us, but there are certain passages in the Bible that really seem to speak very directly to our time and our circumstances. And this is one of those passages. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. <clears throat> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to sit beneath God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that we would clearly hear you speak, that you would speak to your church, that you would speak to each of us individually, and we pray that as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word, that you would remind us of the power of your word and its effectualness to, to change us and transform us. Uh, the very first page of your word tells us that when there was nothing, you spoke into the, into the nothing and you called everything to being that is. Father, when your son walked to this earth. It was by the power of His voice that He spoke to the lame, and they were made to walk, to the deaf, and they were made to hear, to the blind, and they were made to see. It was by the power of His voice that He called into the tombs themselves, and the dead were raised to life. Father, we pray that You would give us this great confidence this morning, that we come and we are seated beneath the power of your word, and you alone have the power through your voice to change us, to wake us from the dead, to wake us from our slumber, to begin the work of healing our lives. And we pray that you would do all of this for us this morning, because we ask these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to children's church, so if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. And while they do that, I'm going to awkwardly scratch the scratch on my back <laughs> that um, I, uh, it's very hard sometimes when you're up here in front of everybody, um, you can't, can't get to those things uh, in a normal way, but um, anyway, um, Each week throughout this fall, we've been methodically working our way through James' letter, and um, and we've been taking on one section of verses at a time. And this is a really interesting passage for us, and I've been scratching my head uh, for a few weeks now in anticipation of it, uh, you know, meditating on what it means, but also how in the world do I communicate this passage? Um, So let me start like this. The author, Irma Bombeck, shared an observation from, uh, from an experience that she had in church, and this is what she wrote. She wrote, 
In, the chur- in church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around, smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about, and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, "'Stop that grinning. You're in church.'" And with that, she gave him a belt, and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, that's better, and returned to her prayers. Um, On the surface, that's kind of how this passage in James reads and feels, like all of a sudden, James is belting us, at least giving us a sharp elbow to the ribs, you know, um, stop smiling, this is the Christian life. And he's commenting… See, he's commenting on something that we all do in life, um, making plans. That's what he's talking about here. He, we'll, you'll see, see it in the first verse. We'll, we'll go here, we'll spend this much time, we'll make some money, etc. plans. That's what he's talking about. Um, he's not even talking about the danger of money here. Uh, he'll talk about that, but he'll talk about that later. Right now, he's just commenting on our plan. Um, and he could have just as easily said, instead of, uh, you know, we'll go here, spend this time, and make this money, he could have said something like, um, you say to yourself, I'm going to graduate college, and I'm going to move to Memphis, and I'm going to get a well-paying job. Or maybe we'll get married, and we'll do a little traveling, and then in three years, we'll settle down and start having kids plans, right? Um, Or he could have said, I'll finish my MBA online in three years, and then I'll be able to get the promotion that I want in my career, in the company. Plans. I mean, we all make plans. It's really unavoidable in life that we are going to be making plans. But then James, he just elbows us (laughs) sharply in the ribs, as it were, and he tells us that our planning is arrogant boasting, and it's evil, he says. Um, and we're like, you know, somebody w- wake up on the wrong side of the bed here. Um, you know, you need a Snickers bar like the commercial talks about. And we think, and some of us think, you know, this is what I hate about Christianity. Uh, and others of us think, this is what embarrasses me about Christianity. You know, it's sit up straight, stop smiling, be spiritual, stop dreaming, stop planning. Not just a killjoy to life, but um, radically unrealistic for the lives that we live. Now, before you write James off, I want to be very clear that that's a very shallow surface understanding of what James is saying about our planning, because he is going far deeper, and his points are much more complex, um, detailed, they're much more nuanced, and contoured to fit reality. Um, he's not elbowing, in the ri- elbowing us in the ribs. He's not saying planning is evil um, or arrogant, or even that it's avoidable. We all plan. What he wants to do for us this morning is he wants us to examine the deeper and darker side of our planning, but he also wants to show us how that planning can be redeemed, how we can plan in light of the gospel um, and find incredible freedom in life. So, Irma Bombeck, we're back to, to her, as she reflected on that scene in the church, she wrote this, "'Suddenly, I was angry.'" 
It occurred to me the entire world is in tears, and if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the smiling God. If he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? And ultimately, I think this is where James takes us in this passage. Even though it sounds very, very harsh, and it will sound a little harsh at the beginning this morning, he's ultimately taking us before the smiling God. And so I'm going to handle this passage a little differently than normal because I want to give you a good sense of what James is arguing here. So here are three things that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about what we bring to our planning first, and then second, we're going to talk about the arrogant evil in our planning, and then finally, we're going to talk about how our planning can be redeemed. So first, what we bring to our planning. And here's what I'm getting at. Um, What is it that informs our desires to plan? What are the instincts that are going on beneath the surface in our planning? What's going on in our hearts when we're planning? One of my daughters um, got lost in school after a few weeks of starting kindergarten. And she was in this big, brand new place, and they're elbowing each other right now uh, because they know who it was. Um, And she got separated from her class in a hallway, and she wound up all alone in this hallway, um, and she was there just standing there crying. Um, And eventually, a teacher found her, rescued her, and got her back to her class. And so at home later that day, she told us this story of her tears in the hallway and of being alone. And so naturally, as her parents, we asked her, I think this was a pretty natural question to ask her, was, you know, were you scared? Um, And she assured us that she wasn't scared, that she wasn't scared at all. And so we asked uh, a natural follow-up question to that. Well, then why in the world were you crying? Um, You know, standing in the hallway crying. And she caught us off guard with a, a pretty deep penetrating and sophisticated response that we weren't prepared for. Um, And this is what she said. She said, I was sad because I was all alone, and I was sad because no one was looking for me. And just like that, (laughs) our hearts broke, and we were like trying to choke back tears, right? And let me just say this. I'll pause for a second to say this. If that… I know that's not your daughter, that's my daughter, but if that doesn't grab your heart just a little, (laughs) something's probably wrong with you and we need to talk. Um, And I'm not trying to be rude about that. Um, It's just, you know, why do our hearts engage so quickly when we hear stories like that? Um, You know, uh, not just of a little girl being lost, but of a little girl feeling forgotten of a little girl feeling abandoned in a sense, not missed and all alone. Here's why I think our hearts engage. Because the moment we were born into this world, all of us, we woke up into the world feeling just like that. A touch of homelessness on all of our lives, adrift and alone and orphaned, 
and forgotten. You know, Lauren Easley, in the 1970s, he coined a great phrase to describe the human experience. He called man the cosmic orphan. Cosmic orphans are born with a sense that they have been forgotten and that they're all alone, they're abandoned, they're homeless, they're adrift in the universe. And alone, we feel the threat that we have to fend for ourselves, we have to protect ourselves, we have to figure out how to survive this very harsh, very insecure, broken world that we live in. Now, in saying all of this, please don't forget our main point here what we bring to our planning. Because here's what I'm saying. We bring, all of us, a sense of abandonment, of aloneness, of a need to fend for ourselves in our planning. We've been orphaned, or we feel that we've been orphaned in this insecure, this very uncertain, this harsh world. And what we want to do, quite naturally, is we want to exert some kind of control over our circumstances. And so we plan and we strategize and we work hard to come up with the right goals and the right measures and the right markers that will protect us, that will help us create a safer life, right? A better life, a happier life, the life we think we should have. I mean, that I'm arguing… Here's what I'm arguing… This is our very natural response and our very natural reaction to life. It's what we bring to our planning. But think about this. What if, what if your very natural reaction to the brokenness of the world also happens to be at the same time the cause of the brokenness that is in the world? What if what we bring to our planning, this desire to try and control a broken life, is also the cause of broken life, I'm saying? Now, this is not a perfect illustration, but let me briefly tell you about a story about the day I learned about hydroplaning in my car. Um, Three days after I got my driver's license when I was 16, I begged my dad to let me take the car to let me take the car to go just around the block to the 7-Eleven with my friends. Um, We had a lot of 7-Elevens where I lived. And then we'd be right back. We'd come back, I assured him. Uh, We wouldn't go anywhere else. And my dad was really unsure because it had been raining earlier that day and the roads were wet and he felt like it would be unsafe. But I nagged him, and I'm sure I complained about how I'm not free, you know, whatever. Uh, I was 16. And... um, So finally, he gave in. So, of course, we went to the 7-Eleven, and of course, we did not come straight home uh, because um, I thought there was some joyriding in this for us. And so we took a detour to experience our freedom, and um, in doing so, we took a right-hand turn. And I came around that right-hand turn, and I felt the back end of that, that car start to slide uh, and hydroplane. And so, you know, w- w- what did I do in that moment? You know, calmly turn into the direction of the drift as the uh, driving manual that I had studied for my test uh, said to do? Heck no. That's not at all what I did. Um, 
my sudden fear led to the most natural reaction I could think of in the moment. So I jerked that wheel around as hard as I could to try to exert some control in what felt like an out-of-control situation. It's just a natural reaction. But in the effort to exert more control, the reality was a disaster because we, we started spinning and we spun around into oncoming traffic and slid right between two cars and we hammered the curb so hard that it knocked two wheels off of my car. Um, and, um, and we called my dad and we had a long walk home. Um, and I, I didn't drive for a long time after that. Um, and it's not a perfect illustration, but listen, I'm asking this question, what if the natural desire to control life is also the desire that leads to the brokenness of life? I want you to think back with me to the book of Genesis, right, the story of man's beginning. I mean, God put man in this garden, and it was a perfect home for him right? It was paradise. It was a world that was at perfect peace and harmony. But in this dangerous twist, man was tempted. And what was he tempted with? He was tempted with the desire to get out from underneath God's control. And you know the story. He wanted to be the one in control. He wanted to be like God, the one calling the shots. And here's how the story goes. The moment he grasped for control was the moment the world started to unravel and come apart at the seams. What once was paradise was now a jungle full of thorns and thistles. And all of a sudden, if you know the story, he was expelled from the garden, kicked out. He was homeless, a cosmic orphan in an insecure, dangerous, and uncertain world that was broken. What we bring to our planning is more than just a natural reaction to the brokenness of the world. What we bring to our planning are our broken hearts, our hearts that are bent on being in control, a desire to play God with our lives, a desire to make life go the way we think it should go. So that's what's behind our planning or what we bring to our planning. And my hope is that what we've just said here We'll give you the context for really hearing James in the second point. So second, we're going to talk about the arrogant evil in our planning because that's really what James' concern was in verse 16. Here's here's verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil, he says. So let's ask this question, what is so arrogant and what is so evil about trying to exert some kind of control in a broken world? And here's what I think James is saying here. He's saying, what's so arrogant is that we completely forget who we are. And what is so evil is that we completely forget who God is. There's a theme that James was weaving through chapter 4. It's hard to see if you just read this passage. But listen to chapter 4, verse 12. He asked this question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen to verse 14 of our passage. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Um, Hopefully you can hear the theme a little bit in those questions. I'll give you uh, my version of it. James was saying, who the heck do you think you are, is what he's saying. Are we so arrogant that we have forgotten how powerless, how limited, how finite, 
how unknowing we actually are. Listen, we live in a culture that truly fosters an arrogant forgetfulness of who and what we really are. We're caught in the flow of a culture that says you can do and be anything you set your mind to. So naturally, we think life is as simple as verse 13, planning to go here and spending a year doing this, and then, of course, we'll succeed and make this money or whatever, make this profit. And so we start thinking that getting our MBA and that promotion really was the fruit of our hard work, our planning, our ingenuity, or we think graduating college and getting the well-paying job that has all the benefits we need was simply the reward of our smart planning, our intelligence, or our dedication. But let me ask you this question. Was it really that simple? The most important factors in all of our successes in life have always been nothing we ever had control over. I mean, the country you were born into, the family you were born into, the school your parents happened to send you to, the neighborhood you grew up in. I mean, my goodness, the opportunities that somehow were made available to you. I mean, really, the you know, the job, the MBA, um, the promotion were simply the rewards of your hard work and your ingenuity and your intelligence. I mean, what if you had been born in Asia Minor in the 12th century? You probably wouldn't have an MBA, no matter how hard you work towards it. What if you grew up in Uganda under a dictatorship where your father made the average daily wage of $1 a day? I mean, this is James' point. It's unbelievably arrogant to assume your life and your successes in life are anything but gifts. We so quickly forget who we are that we're a mist. And you don't even know what tomorrow will be like. But James isn't one to mince words here. There's also an element of evil in our planning he's talking about. Verse 17 of our passage sounds a little bit strange to our ears, and we might even first read it and think, how does this possibly fit with what he's talking about? This is what James wrote. He wrote, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you know how powerless how finite, how limited, how unable you are really and truly to control your life. But you still go about life, and you go about your planning, and you go about your strategizing with no reference to God in your life, right, just forgetting Him, James says that is serious, serious sin. The most fundamental root sin underneath all your other sins isn't breaking this or that rule. It's forgetting God. It's going on about your life as if He didn't matter, as if He was unimportant to what's going on in your family, in your career, in whatever you're doing, right? To to go about life without any reference to His majesty, to His power, to His infinitude, to His mercy and His grace, to go about your career, to make decisions, to live in your relationships, to engage in your hobbies or your entertainments, Um, you know, to go about life without reference to God who made everything and sustains everything. James is saying that's, that's pure evil. For James, there's no other way to describe it or to categorize it, to forget him and act like you are your own God. That's the sin underneath every sin. 
So how quickly, you know, our hearts engage and empathy is stirred within us when we hear of a little girl who feels alone and forgotten and not missed. But you forget God and you ignore Him. Why would that not be a dagger in His heart? That you forget Him over and over in the Old Testament. The constant refrain marking the evil of God's people is that they forgot Him and they followed other gods. James is saying it's evil. You know, one of the first things that the gospel writer John wrote in his gospel was this. This is John 1 verse 10. It's talking about Jesus, and he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. Right? To live our lives and go about planning and forgetting God without reference to God is to be deeply out of touch with reality. Now, before we move on to talk about how our planning can be redeemed, and it does get better after this point, because I know that this point is the harsh point of the sermon, but, but listen, before we move on to talk about how our, redeeming can be pl- uh, how our planning can be redeemed, I want us to ask and try to answer a very practical question. How can you tell when your planning has really become arrogant and evil? Because the truth is, We all have to plan. It's unavoidable. And sometimes it's very hard for us to tell when we've crossed the line. We need help diagnosing the evil and arrogance in our planning. So, you know, if your computer isn't working properly, or your car isn't working properly, it's making a funny noise, or your body isn't working properly, you have a stomachache or something like that, you go find a friend that's a computer geek, right? You go find a mechanic, or you go find a doctor, and you tell them your symptoms, and you, with a mechanic, you try to make that awkwardly try to make that noise that your car is making and all that kind of stuff, right? Because you're saying, here are the symptoms. Help me diagnose what is really going on here. So what are the symptoms that are common to a diagnosis of arrogant evil planning? I'm going to do this very briefly, but let me give you four symptoms in in your life that are a result of arrogant and evil planning. And the first one is this, bitterness. An anger in your life that sours into bitterness and resentment. Bitterness comes into your life to the degree that you think you know what is good and best in your life. To the degree that you think you know what your life should be and what should happen. Are you bitter? You have forgotten who you are. And you have forgotten who God is. Anxiety. The fearful worry and dread you have about the future, anxiety that takes over your life to the degree that you're afraid that God's going to mess your life up, that He won't get it right. You know, you think you always know what is best. God has to fix this or do this. If He doesn't, my life will be ruined. Are you anxious? James would say, you have forgotten who you are, and you have forgotten who God is. Depression. I mean, despairing and feeling hopeless about life. And I'm not talking about a medical condition. I'm talking about the depression you feel in life over life circumstances. When you've become convinced that you've messed up your life or that God has messed up your life beyond repair, you have completely forgotten who you are and who God is and what He's able to do. Envy, when your heart burns with jealousy 
over the successes or the gifts that you see in other people's lives. You've set your hearts on, on things you think you should have in life because you think you deserve those things in life much more so than that other person deserves them. You have forgotten who you are, and you have forgotten who God is. That's four symptoms, really quick, I know, but bitterness, anxiety, depression, and envy, four symptoms that we can trace back to our arrogant evil in our planning. And and I don't give you those because, you know, this is what preachers love to do. I, I get a chance to shame you with that. That's not, that's not it. But to show you how easy it is for all of us to miss this in our lives and for us actually to live lives that are deeply out of touch with reality when it comes to our planning and thinking about the future. Finally, here's where we need to end with how our planning can be redeemed. Because this is what James is doing. He's, he's writing to call us back to reality, to lives that are shaped and planning that is shaped by the gospel, by truth and grace. So James gives us two things to do in order that our planning would be redeemed. He says this, you have to remember who you are and you have to remember who God is. We have to remember who we are. A couple of weeks ago, I read that long ago when an eastern emperor was crowned at Constantinople, um, they did something very unique in the ceremony of his crowning. When the emperor was crowned, the royal mason was brought before his throne, before the emperor, and the royal mason would set before the emperor all a vast number of these beautiful marble slabs. And you know Why? <laughs> It was basically so that he could pick out his headstone for his death, right? They thought it was wise for the leader to remember his funeral at the very same time of his ascension to the throne. He may occupy a very important seat, but he's just a mist that will soon vanish. Real humility is needed in order to be wise. And you and I need to foster a true remembrance of who we really are. And let me give you one way that you can really do that. If you're a mist and you have no knowledge or control of what tomorrow will bring, then that means wherever you find yourself right now, and I mean wherever you find yourself right now, whether the circumstances in your life are pleasant or if they are bad… You are where you are purely by the grace of God. So what's the one thing you can do? You and I can learn how to practice gratitude and thankfulness no matter your circumstances. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These are the kinds of things that the biblical writers write gratitude and thankfulness and all things, a true remembrance of who you really are, that's what will come into your life and begin to dissipate the bitterness and the anxiety and the depression and the envy that's a result of this evil and arrogant planning in our lives. But we not only need to remember who we are and foster ways to remember who we are, but we also need to remember who God is. In verse 15, James wasn't saying, don't plan. He was saying, when you plan, say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
You know, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes uh, goes like this. He writes, our need love for God is in a different position because our need of Him can never end either in this world or any other, but our awareness of it can, and then the need love dies too. See, no matter who you are, we are dependent on God for everything, and that is unchangeable, but you and I can easily forget how dependent we are. We can be unaware, and we can live our lives without reference to God, and when we do, the need love we have for God begins to die in our lives. James says, when you plan, do everything in reference to God, if the Lord wills, needs to be your first thought, right? I've read that the Latin equivalent of if the Lord wills is Deo Valente. Um, And earlier Christians used this phrase often in their writing and speaking. In fact, for a period of time, Christians, certain Christians used to sign every one of their letters with the initials DV, Deo Valente. And it's kind of cool practice, but it also represents the danger that's present because James wasn't giving us a secret incant- incantation to bless all our plans, as if we just attach, if the Lord wills on the front of everything, everything will be okay. He was writing about the posture of our hearts that we need to bring to our planning, a posture that's radically different from where we began this morning, trying to exert control over our lives. See, what he's saying is that this is planning, right, while giving up control of your life. This is planning that involves real submission of taking your hands off of your life. And how do you do that? How how do you find the freedom to take your hands off your life? You remember who God is. There is nothing worse in your life than the feeling of being completely forgotten. That's why it registers so quickly with us. There's nothing worse than feeling abandoned and alone. Do you remember the words of Jesus on the cross? When He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus experienced cosmic abandonment, cosmic aloneness. His Father turned His back on Him, and on the cross He was utterly forgotten. And listen, when you answer the question, why He was forsaken, you find the key to remembering who God really is. When you answer that question, you find the freedom to take your hands off of your life and submit We read the answer to that question earlier in our service. It was in our assurance of pardon from Isaiah chapter 53. Why was He forsaken? He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. He took the thorns and the nails and the spear in His side. He was abandoned and forgotten in our place. And He did it so that we might have peace. He did it so that we would no longer have to fear being cosmic orphans. Right? So that we could be assured that the very smile of God completely and entirely rests upon us because of everything Jesus did for us. 
Now, one final brief thing. I, I think I opened up too many threads here that I now have to tie off. But we said that when man tried to get out from underneath God's control and be his own God, the world started unraveling and coming apart at the seams. And the book of Revelation, if you read the book of Revelation, points us to a future where one day the world is going to be put back together. Everything's going to be mended, and it will be whole and complete. And it's this great future promise that we have in Revelation. But John, who wrote Revelation, in Revelation 21, he also wrote this, and he, that is Jesus, was seated on the throne, and he said, Behold, I am making all things new. And here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, if you come under the throne of Jesus, if you take your hands off of your life, and you submit, if you bring your plans to Him, only if the Lord's wills, only if the Lord wills, then now, right now, He will begin to make all things new. He will begin the work of putting us back together, of making us whole, of making us what we were meant to be in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can have time to sit beneath Your Word, and there are some Sundays that we gather, and it is harder for us to sit beneath Your Word because we are reminded of how broken we really are and how that brokenness, um, it just slips into our lives so, so very easily. Sometimes we are unconscious of it. Um, And Father, we pray that You would remind us this morning that You are a gracious God, that we are Your finite creatures, but we are the creatures You love. And You sent Your own Son to die for us that we might have life in Him so that we would know Your promise that now we can never be forgotten because we are clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus. And Father, we pray that You would help us, that You would show us the truth of the gospel in order that we would feel more certain the wonderful freedom of the gospel to come and submit everything to You. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.